2: You know, the internet is a wonderful thing. I just quickly want to say, I mean, it's also a horrible thing. We know that too, but so I've been working in radio since 1992. I started out as a print journalist and I moved over to radio or added radio in 1992. And I think anybody who's ever worked with me would tell you that I know less about radio technology after all these 29 years or whatever it is than, I don't know, newly arrived interns do after. One month. So here I am, I'm broadcasting from home. I, and apropos of the conversation we're about to have, I do intend to go back into the studio probably around March 15th just to quickly do my show and leave, but I will have been vaccinated fully for two weeks by then. But right now I'm, I'm broadcasting from home. And so the, our microphones, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it's, the microphone often sits in a little cradle of elastic strings. And something has happened. <laughs> And I, it's, the microphone basically looks like it's about to fall to the ground any second. But I just looked online and there are like videos about how to fix that. And it's I even found out it's called a shock mount. At least I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Anyway, all of that is by way of saying welcome to our show. We are going to begin with the pandemic. We will go from the pandemic to some asymmetries in the way that uh, news uh, selects its guests from Congress. I, I'll, say, I'll say less rather than more about that now. And then we're going to end with the cloning for the first time of a black-footed ferret. We're going to tell you why that's important and even borderline wonderful. Uh, and Elizabeth Ann is the name of the newborn uh, ferret. Uh, joining us now, she's been with us before. We're lucky to get her. Alina Nguyen uh, is an ER physician and visiting professor at George Washington University School of Public Health, contributing columnist at the Washington Post, medical analyst for CNN. Uh, welcome back to our show.
0: Thank you very much. Glad to be with you.
2: So we're sitting here on the precipice of a fairly grim uh, milestone. It'll either ha- happen or it has happened uh, that we have surpassed 500,000 deaths from this pandemic. I mean, just, a you know, it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around that. Uh, that's roughly the population of Kansas City, Missouri, uh, just gone. Uh, so... That's the bad news. The good news is that almost every major indicator seems to be moving in the direction we want it to. So let's begin there. I mean, how good is that good news? how uh, How confident should we be about it?
0: Well, I think you described it very well in that it does seem like we are at a turning point. There are lots of um, of indicators that look like we're trending in the right direction finally. So we have declining number of daily cases. Hospitalizations are now less than half of what they were at the peak. Death numbers are trending down. Um, you could see this, um, the glass half full, and say that, look, warmer weather is also on the way, and we're getting people vaccinated more and more every day, and so maybe we've turned the corner. But I think it's too soon for us to celebrate just yet because we also have some other concerning trends, too. We know that there are more transmissible variants, including the uh, variant first identified in the UK, the B117 1. 1. variant, that could well become dominant here in the US by next month, by March which means that you could have something that could, again, spread with exponential speed. And the activities that we thought were relatively safe now could become less safe if you have something among us that's more contagious. And I also worry about what happens when we let down our guard. We see around the country that there are policies, there are restrictions that are now being lifted because the numbers are trending in the right direction. But I worry about what happens when there's indoor dining open again, when people are traveling more and more, whether there might be another surge that I I think would just be so tragic because we are so close, I think, to having that light at the end of the tunnel.
2: Right. So the phrase that keeps getting used is life returns to normal. And then we get different dates for that and different circumstances under which that could be the case. Let's listen to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, discussing uh, this same question.
3: The slope that's coming down is really terrific. It's very steep and it's coming down very, very quickly. But we are still at a level that's very high. What I don't and none of my colleagues want to see is when you look at that slope to come down that to say, wow, we're out of the woods now. We're in good shape. We're not because the baseline of daily infections is still very, right. very high. It's not the 300 to 400,000 that we had some time ago, but we want to get that baseline
2: really, really, really low before we start thinking that we're out of the woods. Right. So a lot of it is also going to be sort of who gets to decide what the baseline is and when it's low enough and, and all of those things. But let's talk about some things that affect that. Uh, one thing we don't know, to the best of my knowledge, is what percentage of the U.S. population has actually had COVID. And, and joined with that unknown is we don't know how durable the immunity is from a naturally acquired COVID infection as opposed uh, to a, a vaccine. Can you comment more on that?
0: So you're, you're right that um, on both of these points, first that we don't know the number of people who have some level of immunity to COVID-19. We do know that having had other coronaviruses, because we know that there are other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, for example, but having other coronaviruses does not seem to give you immunity to COVID-19, it doesn't give you protection to it. But if you've had COVID-19, we know that reinfection is pretty rare and that you at least have some level of protection for some period of time. We don't know, though, whether you get that same level of protection if you were mildly ill or if you were asymptomatic and never knew that you were ill, as you do if you have had a documented illness uh, or a severe illness that you recovered from. And so that remains one of the unknowns, um, exactly what that total number is that have immunity and how long they might have immunity to for. And then there's something else on top of that as well, which is that there are variants emerging, um, the variant out of South Africa and Brazil, also called the B1351 and the P1 variants, that look like they could cause reinfection. So, in people who were infected the first time with other strains of coronavirus, if they are now exposed to these, um, these other strains, potentially that could cause reinfection. And that could, again, throw a wrench into things. And I think that's really the big unknown for us at this point, the effect of these variants. I talked earlier about what happens if you have a more transmissible variant. But you can imagine if there are now variants that, are, that may be less susceptible to the vaccines, that could cause reinfection, then it may be, and uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies are already doing this, but they are. it may be that we may need booster shots that specifically target these variants but that we may be forever playing whack-a-mole, that you are getting a booster shot to target certain variants. But then there are other variants that may be emerging that you then have to develop additional booster shots for. And so it may be that we end up having to live with COVID-19 in some way. But I do want to add the reminder that the vaccines that we have are so highly effective at the most important endpoint. And that's the endpoint of um, reducing Severe illness, severe enough illness to cause hospitalization and death. If we can get vaccines to people and essentially prevent this level of severe illness from occurring in patients who have COVID-19, that would be the real game changer. And I think that's what will allow us to get back to some level of normality. I
2: think one of the things that's hard for people who are concerned about this, want to understand it uh want to uh, model their behavior based on uh, on the best sciences we're still at that point I, I you know it is like trying to build a bridge while you're walking across the bridge you're trying to build this everything's kind of in motion all the time things are changing and, you know, you probably know about this Lancet study in Mineus Brazil, where they seemed based uh, on zero positivity, positivity, they seemed like they'd had so much COVID that they would have had theoretical uh, herd immunity just based on the number of infection, percentage of infection. But they've got this abrupt surge that's happening right now. It's uh, that kind of stuff is an indication that there's just a lot of stuff that we haven't quite nailed down, I think, as you were suggesting in your previous answer, the way we would want to have it nailed down before we could say, yes, you can go off to a a wedding with 50 other people.
0: Yeah, and I think that's part of the difficulty, too, that there is what you would do from a purely infectious disease control standpoint, as in we know that this is a virus that spreads from person to person and that if you were just focused on the singular measure of stopping transmission, you could have a total lockdown and control the virus, as other countries, frankly, have done with good effect. But we also know that there are many other issues involved as well, including the cost to school, to students being out of school, to the economy, et cetera. And I think the difficulty here is that the advice that we give to people cannot solely be based on the, the science and evidence without taking into account the practicality of how it impacts people's lives. And so actually, I think the point about vaccination is a really important one, because we know that these vaccines are so effective at preventing severe disease. We do not fully know yet as to whether they reduce the likelihood of you getting the vaccine from transmitting COVID to other people who may be unvaccinated. There's growing evidence that getting the vaccine probably also reduces your likelihood of transmission, but we don't know this for certain. We definitely don't know that this is a 100% decrease yet. At the same time though, we really have to give people practical guidance. The number one question I think that I get asked these days is what can fully vaccinated people do? What are the freedoms that they now have? Can they see their grandkids? Can, um, can families get together again? Can they now go get their doctor's appointment that they've been putting off and, you know, from, again, from a purely scientific perspective, we would be giving very, very, very cautious advice, but that's not really practical because people also do have to move on with their lives and have to get um, some sense of, of normality back. And so actually to that question, I would say, people who have been putting off um, medical appointments or other essential activities should definitely get that taken care of once they're fully vaccinated. And I actually think that the chance of, um, of, um, of, uh, of infecting others is pretty low if you can also take into account other precautions and so I, I do think that grandparents who are eager to see their grandchildren should be able to do so if they travel wearing masks if they're very careful ahead of visiting their family but you know no bar hopping definitely keep on wearing masks if you're fully vaccinated but i think allowing people some degree of freedom even in the absence of full scientific proof is really important
2: yeah. So I'm sort of about to be in that position. I will get my second uh, Pfizer dose on March 3rd uh, if everything works out. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about, so sort of, what does that mean? And, and to your point, yes, I haven't seen my eye doctor in a really long time. Uh, I'm due for a colon- colonoscopy. I'm going to just start scheduling all that kind of stuff. I- I've been fairly comfortable with medical appointments uh as things particularly recently because so many of the people who are taking care of you are themselves now vaccinated but yeah beyond that it's unclear to me i was listening to this week in virology over the weekend so these are all as you know scientists who study this stuff often at the at the molecular level uh and but but also at the epidemiological level and, and the ones on that show who have, who are fully vaccinated were still saying it was going to be a while before they were comfortable getting on an airplane. So coming from scientific people, I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, I had no real plans to jump on an airplane either, but to your point, we don't exactly know the risk we face. We don't know the risk we pose, and we don't know the exact risk of any particular activity like getting on an airplane. That's right. But I
0: think that we, you know, as has been the case throughout the pandemic, I think people do need to make the best decisions for themselves, take into account their own risk tolerance and the understanding also that risk is additive, risk is cumulative. And so I think one of the big misunderstandings of this pandemic is people thinking, well, now I have to go to work and my kids are now back in school. And so I might as well also have dinner with my family. I'm, um, We might as well also get together for play dates and birthday parties. That's really not the right approach. We should be thinking about it as you're taking certain risks. That's all you have the budget for is these particular risks. So if you're doing these things, don't also do these other things. That add onto your risk profile. Um, I do think, though, that for fully vaccinated people, that it is really important to give them hope. Um, otherwise, frankly, I think we're going to have a substantial backlash. Of, I mean, I've already heard from from patients, "Hey, if my life is going to be exactly the same post-vaccine as pre-vaccine, why should I even bother getting the vaccine?" Or other people saying, "I'm just, I don't, I don't believe you. If you're telling me that these vaccines are so highly protective." And now I can't go out and and, and even see my family. I just don't believe this guidance. So I'm going to go out there and do everything. Again, I think that's where the role of public health needs to come in and say, our focus is on preserving health and well-being. It's harm reduction, which is something that we talk about for many other aspects of public health, too. So we're going to help people with where they are, reduce risk as much as possible, give them the guidance to make the best decisions that are suitable for their life circumstances. So I definitely think that people who have been putting off their mammograms and colonoscopies and elective surgeries, and now they're fully vaccinated, they should definitely do that. I would not go bar hopping and um, and, and and rip off my, my mask and you know, stop doing social distancing because you could still be infecting other people. But I think it's entirely reasonable for families that are fully vaccinated to get together with one another, for couples that are fully vaccinated to get together with one another, or if the main reason that grandparents were not previously seeing their grandkids was out of concern for the older people's health. Yes, there is still a very small chance that they could transmit the virus to the other people in their family, but that chance is small. And I think the mental health impact of staying socially isolated will outweigh any theoretical risk there might be.
2: But so, well, actually, maybe we can come back to this. I know, I know your time is limited, but I do did want to spend a little bit of time with the people who are vaccine hesitant. And and you know, once again, it's a lot of this is sort of storytelling and messaging and stuff like that. There are some people you're never going to reach. They're never going to take a COVID vaccine. They don't want to take a rotavirus vaccine. They don't want any any vaccine. So um, so forget about them for a second. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are kind of in this gray area. To me, one of the most um, significant things that I've heard or read anywhere, and I've now heard it tw- twice in different places, is that kind of in the history of studying vaccines and the history of, uh, of rolling out vaccines, um, six weeks is when side effects happen. If there are going to be side effects, they're going to happen within six weeks of vaccinations. So even though there's no such thing is a guarantee. There's no no one can say that it's impossible that, you know, nine months from now, everybody who got the Moderna vaccine is going to have transverse myelitis. But it's incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, not only unlikely, but but sort of runs against everything we know uh, about previous vaccine trials that, you know, if it doesn't happen in six weeks, it's not happening at all. I think if more people knew that and like, I mean, it's one of those things that's the messaging is so complex and it comes from so many many different places and the Internet muddies it up with people passing stuff around. But to me, that's one of the things where if I had any hesitation at all, that would help me a lot. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could just say a little bit about just how we tell the story of vaccines so that the people who are persuadable get persuaded.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we need to meet people where they are in terms of the people who are vaccine hesitant. Mm. Um, I think there is a tendency to put all, all of them into the same category and say, well, right now, so many people want the vaccine. So if you don't want the vaccine, who cares? You're in that other category. And I think to your point, um, People are not a monolith. Yes, there are some people who are anti-vaccine um, and may hold um, may not be vaccinating their children for other illnesses. Maybe they just hold certain attitudes about science that may counter everything else. But I actually think that a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant are uncertain about these vaccines in large part because they are new and i think it's important for us to understand the source of that hesitation some people have said well the speed of development is so fast and that's true i think it's important to acknowledge yes this was fast but there were no shortcuts taken in the scientific process we um, the uh, the clinical trials involved tens of thousands of participants we now also have data of millions of people who have been vaccinated And I think that having those proof points of their friends, their colleagues, their neighbors who've gotten vaccinated, I think will also help in this regard. I think there are also very specific misconceptions about these vaccines that it's important to address. the um, the The side effects may be one, um, or there may be individuals um, who um, who hear about the mRNA vaccine and s- somehow think that that might interfere with their own genetic code. And then I think there's an easy answer to that in saying hey, your genetic code is containing your DNA, which is in the nucleus of your cell. The mRNA vaccine never enters the nucleus of your cell. So there's no chance that it's going to impact your own DNA. Or some people who think, I don't want to get the coronavirus from getting the vaccine. Not possible because these vaccines do not contain the live virus. So you're not going to get the coronavirus from the coronavirus vaccine. So I think understanding what people's specific concerns are is really key to addressing Um, that, that level of hesitation. Understanding also that building trust takes time. Eroding trust could happen very quickly, but building trust, it takes time. And it's not enough to establish that trust without first establishing trustworthiness.
2: Yeah, I think storytelling is really important to a certain degree, and one of the most effective ones that I've heard a couple of times now. Uh, I read the op-ed she wrote, and and I listened to her be interviewed, Dr. Eugenia South, who I believe is an E.R. physician like you, and and who was vaccine hesitant. Uh, she herself was not sure. She's black, which is not insignificant, uh, and in terms of uh, attitudes towards uh, you know EUA medicines and things like that, but she explained in a very clear and effective way, mentioning that limited window for side effects during vaccine trials and a bunch of other things, how she changed her mind. And I thought, wow, if I had any doubts, if I'd been sitting here, like, you know, even 10 or 20% on the fence about getting vaccinated, I think this would have made a pretty big difference to me. And But a lot of it is just, you know, once again, hearing it from somebody who's describing her own experience, which might have some similarities to other people maybe the difference being she's also actually a doctor um, but there's there's a way in which you know some of the messaging i think almost has to become in that form dr fauci's wonderful but he doesn't he can't necessarily tell a story like that one
0: mm, i i think that that's right I think the stories of how people um, evolved over time and their own thinking is really important. And I also think to your uh, to your other point, the idea of the trusted messenger, that um, for many people, the trusted messenger is their doctor or their nurse or pharmacist. For others, that trusted messenger may also be their pastor, um, their rabbi, um, their imam, their um, their barber, I mean, their neighbor. And so I think that actually all of us have a role to play here because chances are we are the trusted messenger to somebody that we know and love.
2: All right. Well, uh, we should end it there. I know you've got uh, another thing to get to. But I, first of all, want to say uh, thank you for participating in this. I mean, this is sort of part of the very thing that we're talking about uh, is just trying to make sure people have enough information to make uh, good decisions. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for, for coming back here one more time. Lena Wen, an ER physician uh, and visiting professor at George Washington University School of Public Health, contributing columnist at The Washington Post, medical analyst for CNN. For th-
0: thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Glad to
2: join you. All right. So when we come back, you know, it may seem to you like uh, Congress is full of really extreme lunatics, which you're sort of right about, except the full of part. There's a way in which you see certain people on television a lot, uh, people who are not necessarily representative of the representatives. We'll explain more after this break.
3: And Madam Butterfly resounds over the mothership, her lights flashing round. I flew above her, and I wonder how to make it good.
2: All right so uh i might have mentioned this uh, already i probably mentioned it five times already so i'm back teaching this semester uh, and teaching a political science course uh, at yale about political journalism which has caused me to think more about what what's journalism for what's it supposed to do and and to what degree does journalism have as its mission to present a clear picture of reality and how good is journalism at that and while I was thinking about that, I was looking around and I was doing some reading and I stumbled across this study. Uh, and we're going to hear about the study now from Joshua Darr, an assistant professor of political communication at Louisiana State University. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. So the, the study essentially um, helps us understand why we see certain people. Uh, on television, an, an awful lot. Certain members of Congress uh, on MSNBC or CNN or uh, or Fox News, uh, and maybe don't see uh, other people so much. So, give us kind of a sense of, of what you studied and what you found.
1: Sure. So, we took a look at uh, several years worth of, of transcripts from cable networks and from broadcast networks to see. Not only who was invited on as an interview, but who was whose quotes were played and basically who was given speaking opportunities uh, in Congress. And what we did was we took the the data set of, of speaking opportunities and compared it to the, the data set of what the actual ideologies of those members of Congress were. And what we found was that politicians from the extremes were given more opportunities to speak. They were heard from more. And what that does then is is distort people's views of who makes up Congress. The Congress that we see on TV is not the same as the Congress that uh, actually exists in the chamber, at least according to how we measure ideology.
2: But it's also, it also affects, um, and there's sort of a chicken egg question here too, uh, but um, it also affects how members of Congress think about what they're supposed to do. So in the old model, and this is something that you point out in the old model, and I'm really old, so I was part of the old model. Um, you know, members of Congress were really, really worried about how they were covered in their districts. So you had, you know, a presumably relatively robust print journalism uh, ecosphere. Uh, and and that print journalism, as you point out, generated a lot of the stories that then got covered by local TV news, uh, which also would have its own set of political correspondence and stuff. So here in Connecticut, if you're John Larson or somebody like that, you really and you want to win your next election, you, you're, you want to be very attuned to how you're being covered in your state and in your specific district, if you're a representative or the whole state, if you're a member of the Senate. One of the things that you point out is that whole ecosystem has kind of declined to a point where maybe it doesn't exert the pull over a politician that it used to. But elaborate on that.
1: The media environment determines the incentives that elected representatives face. And so if they're facing a strong local media uh, ecosystem that, like you said, with newspapers and TV covers what they're bringing back to their districts and how they're working with people on, on common concerns to the place where they're from, that's going to change their behavior. If it's about earning national coverage through extreme partisan statements, if that's what gets rewarded on national TV, and if, as we point out, national TV is the currency uh, of their jobs, then they're going to respond to those. Politicians are strategic and they want to get reelected. It's just a question of what incentives they're responding to. And local media sets up very different incentives than national does.
2: And, you know, as you pointed out in one of the pieces that you've done, the members of Congress—they're not even shy about pointing that out. At least certain among them. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, probably the most, the newest and most kind of infamous and colorful example of a member of Congress with extreme views, getting a lot of media coverage. Basically, when she was stripped of her committee assignment, said, "Well, that's fine with me. I have more time to play in the sun, so to speak, and uh, and to do more media." Madison Cawthorn, similarly, a hyper-conservative, newly elected member of Congress in an internal con- uh, communication to other members of Congress said that, you know, he had staffed up more with his communication strategy in mind than getting legislation passed. So that, that raises the question, what, what's the game, you know, well, what's the game and what are the rules and how do you win the game? And, and it does seem that maybe some of these members of Congress see getting on national TV uh, as part of winning the game
1: it does seem to be what they're going for. Like when I was researching this article, one of the pieces I read about Madison Cawthorn's statement about comms over legislation <laughs> called it refreshing candor <laughs> um, that, that he would just come out and say that. Um, but it, you know, it's part of a longer trend. Um, the committee system sort of changed in Congress in the seventies with when the, the post Nixon group came in. And ever since then, there's been a real growth in communication staff in Congress as. They've used media and media coverage to to earn more uh, power within the chamber and to raise their their profile. So, you know, I think that it, it's a longer term trend, but more recent sh- uh, decline of local media, the rise of social media, have just given them a lot more chances to do that. and And you see it every day in in the way that they're trying to uh, to attract attention.
2: So if we sort of look at this vortex, you've got uh, companies, media companies, that run these television operations. Uh, They have a goal of attracting viewers. That's their business model. Uh, So yes, if they have a choice between Madison Cawthorn and somebody less colorful, more boring, more centrist, more sensible, they're going to go in that direction, that first direction, most of, of the time. So then you've also got, as we're now summarizing, members of Congress who realize that and start playing to that extreme. And then this kind of distorted picture begins to develop, right, uh, of one of the reasons that we all think Or many of us think we're living in a crazy country right now is because what we see on television looks so crazy even when it comes to members of congress who have these extreme views but it it seems like a a cycle that's hard to break into at any point i mean in in other words as long as cnn needs more viewers in order to prosper and as, as long as more viewers gravitate towards certain narratives and certain extremes Like, you know, how do you correct for that? So you I mean, it seems to be the baseline goal of journalism would be to present a fairly accurate picture of reality. But you're saying that's not what's happening right now. Instead, you're seeing a much more polarized and divided Congress than perhaps exists.
1: That's no that and that that is what we're seeing. And the news values of conflict and novelty and those sorts of things are, are overwhelming the the impulse to, to present Congress in a more ideologically correct fashion. Of of course, all of this data is available and and uh, newspapers could figure and, and news sources could figure out, you know, who to talk to and where they sit on this ideological spectrum. That's one possible solution is just to have that in mind when choosing things. Um, but in general, if we can't figure out a way to re-empower local media uh, they're going to, you know, members of Congress are going to keep pursuing these strategies. And so whether it's, you know, national uh, sources of media trying to focus on uh, more local concerned, bringing in local journalists to talk about what the local incentives are for these members of Congress, um, treating them as representatives of a district and not as representatives of their party, I think could be helpful as well. But like you say, you know, as long as conflict sells, we're in uh, we're in a, a predicament with this
2: right uh, i mean i think one of the possible I mean, I guess this is kind of a short window observation. You've really looked at a very long window with the kind of data that you have. But at any given moment, the kind of man bites dog scenario that's attractive to uh, to assignment desk editors uh, at the national level can be moderation. I am mean, like Adam Kinzinger, one of the Republicans who kind of broke with his own party uh, to vote uh, the other way on the Trump impeachment, he's. He is a much sought after guest at this point, simply because to whatever degree extremism and inflexibility become norms, then extremism and inflexibility become potentially more boring because people have seen a lot of it. And the, the Rara Avis turns out to be the Mitt Romney or the Adam Kinzinger. I, I don't know whether that strikes you as a sustainable uh, phenomenon over you know any great length of time, but it seems to me in a short window that does happen. So
1: I think you're right about that but I would I would point out that I think that that's just it's just, it's also a conflict frame but it's a conflict frame within the Republican Party or within the Democratic Party people breaking with their party is is going to be an attractive angle and Tim Groling at UCLA has some really great work showing that um, but I I would say that you know if that could be incentivized that would be perhaps more productive than breaking with the party toward the extreme. (laughs) Um, So figuring out which way uh, conflict with the party goes and and how that might be prioritized by the media, you know, that's also a real story and it's very much a real real dynamic that's happening. Um, Like you say, if everybody's out on the extreme, then that becomes kind of boring. So then the move becomes to go the other way. So maybe it's a self-correcting process, but It does require some deliberate thinking and maybe some resistance of that short term impulse to just go for the most uh, controversial and and conflictual frames.
2: So we're we're nearing the end here, I promise. But, um, you know, when we think about that chicken and egg question, I don't know whether we, we know the answer. In other words, is there a Marjorie Taylor Greene simply because the electorate uh, and the the overall political environment demands that there be such a person and such a person can conceivably get almost incomprehensibly elected to Congress. In in other words, you know, and, and then from there, we can say, well, now that she's in Congress, she's going to get on television a lot for all the reasons that we've just outlined. But I'm wondering to what degree you think, Television causes that or television simply scoops that up? I mean, chicken and egg arguments in situations like this are, are very hard to answer. But what are your thoughts?
1: That is a tricky question. And I think there's always been people on the extremes of, of either party. I, our paper focuses on how that is sort of distorts people's views of those parties by presenting them something that's not you know, necessarily the way that it actually is, I think. Part of the answer here might be other institutions. If if somebody like that is elevated by television, at what point does the party step in and try to rein them back in? The party is another very powerful institution that determines what they get while they're in Congress. And um, and you know, some Republicans broke with most of their party to strip her of committees assignments and that sort of thing with with regard to Representative Taylor Green. Um, but I think that. By spotlighting the extremes, it doesn't necessarily reward them in an individual case because it did lead to her directly being sanctioned. But we don't show individual cases. We have this longer time frame where we show that over time uh, it does just sort of become more of a trend and more of an enduring kind of process. And so that, I think, is something that just requires some more thought from the media in terms of, of what they're presenting and, uh, and what people are seeing as a result, because through the media uh, and more and more through the national media is really how people see congress how people see their representatives you know article one um and and the, the sort of the first branch of government uh, so it's, it's an important question that i think um the national media needs to think about
2: the question is will they i mean uh, you know we all have watched this unfold i mean after 2016 I think is was it was is it, is it one of those Shorenstein Center debriefings, Jeff Zucker from CNN and Les Moonves from CBS both kind of admitted, why did they cover Trump so much during the primary process when the field was large and he was disproportionately being covered and they'd have a camera just fixed on an empty podium waiting for him to come out at one of his rallies rather than covering something else. And they basically said, for the money, for the numbers, for the eyeballs. Of course we did this. He's good for business. Um, you know, and uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on today, not only do I think the study is fascinating, but there was a piece by Alyssa Rosenberg in the Washington Post, but who's who's the next star going to be? Who's going to be the next star? You know, and is it going to be Donald Trump Jr. or Lara Trump or is it going to be one of these other uh, extreme kinds of people? I mean, there isn't any real. contemplation that the next star would be somebody who is a little bit more pensive or reflective or moderating in his or her views or or anything like that It, it I don't know what it would take to transform the culture of what is essentially a highly competitive business at this point. I mean, Fox News finds itself outflanked on the right by Newsmax and OANN. It it doesn't augur, I don't think, for a time of saying, wow, we should really sort of think a little bit more about the kind of people we put on camera here, about whether we're damaging the fiber of the republic (laughs) uh, in in our quest for ratings. To me, it just looks like there's going to be even more eagerness to get better ratings
1: it is tough times for the media and the when when resources are stretched and when um and when there's there's almost too much news which i would argue has very much been the case in the, over the last four or five years um that can be a very difficult decision for them to make um but they should at least then have a sense of what the consequences are and you know to the extent that they can spotlight those who break with their party toward the middle um that would be good you know in terms of who the next star will be it's not just extremity i mean we don't measure things like charisma or media savvy or the communication staff that you have uh, and i think that those are all very important factors when it comes to earning media you know pe- some people call it free media i prefer earned media because you do have to earn it one way or the other and what we show is that being extreme is one way But also, you know, having a compelling message, being funny, being entertaining um, are also aspects of that. So there's always a a talent factor of this, but there's also staffing, making connections with the media, having people that that are willing to listen to you. Um, So it's going to be some combination of those factors, and we'll find out if there's a limit to how extreme things can get. Uh, Maybe we haven't reached it yet. Maybe we won't. Maybe there isn't one. But it's also possible that there is, and like you say, the the incentives of newsworthiness may well swing things back to the middle um, because the media is going to follow where the interesting people are.
2: Right. Well, 13 years ago, there was a very non-extreme guy named Barack Obama, who was the biggest political star, uh, for a very long time to come. And that is not a person with very extreme views. So there are, there are other ways to do this. And that's good to know. Joshua Dar is an assistant professor uh, of political communications at Louisiana State University. Uh, one of the ways that you can track down the study is four, 46,218 news transcripts show ideologically extreme politicians get more airtime. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And we'll take a break and then we'll give you some good news about a ferret. know, I'm thinking that maybe the appropriate response for me to the preceding segment is to revive my Andrew Yang partisanship. It's something I have to meditate on before I actually do. But I want to thank a bunch of people for today's show, especially uh, Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. She's there in the studio making sure everything happens as it should. Uh, and that means that Betsy Kaplan and I can both work from remote locations. Betsy Kaplan is the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show. She is the producer of this particular episode. So special thanks to her as well. Uh, and i tell you about what's coming up this week, but we have to have a meeting right after the show to figure out what's coming up this week. It's going to be great though. Uh, All right, so I should say, cards on the table, Uh, domestic ferrets uh, are uh, in my life. Uh, My son uh, and his mom are both really into domestic ferrets. This is not a story about domestic ferrets, although domestic ferrets play a role in this. This is a story about the uh, black-footed ferret, which was thought to be extinct for many years until suddenly it was discovered they weren't. But that wasn't uh, enough really necessarily to save them. Here to uh, tell us more about this is Ben Novak, a a de-extinction biologist and the lead scientist at Revive and Restore. He leads the great passenger pigeon and come back, uh, and for that reason, or for reasons that will become obvious, uh, he got very interested and excited. But it turned out it was possible to clone a black-footed ferret. So, Ben Novak, well, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: So, you know, yes, in 1981, they discovered that the black-footed ferrets were not extinct. Uh, there weren't very many of them, but they were not extinct. Uh, and uh, they, in fact, discovered a colony of 18 ferrets. Uh, scientists have bred 10,000 of them in captivity and introducing 4,000 of them into the wild. So what? why wasn't that good enough? Why wouldn't that have been, okay, there's a big win. We fixed the ferret problem.
3: Well, you know, if you, you think of the numbers you just said there, Over the generations, there have been nearly 10,000 black-footed ferrets bred, which is a huge conservation success, but they're all descended from those few that they captured at that last population. And while they captured 18 and brought them into captivity, they traced their ancestry back to just seven individuals. And today, every black-footed ferret is related to each other somewhere between a sibling and a first cousin. So they have really low genetic diversity. And while they they're not experiencing inbreeding depression problems yet. It is a severely uh, uh, serious long term threat. And we had the opportunity, thanks to San Diego uh, Zoo Global's Frozen Zoo um, uh, director Oliver Ryder and Wyoming State Game and Fish Department uh, worker Tom Thorne, who back in 1988 saved the tissue samples from a ferret named Willa who was caught with those seven founders. Um, but she has no living descendants in the population. And so thanks to their work and the partnerships with Viagen Pets and Equine, who, who clone pets and livestock every day, um, with Fish and Wildlife Service overseeing this, we were able to reach back in time, grab a ferret from the wild from that last population who has no living descendants and bring in an eighth individual to this Founder population of seven, um, and and this is getting ahead of the curve and adding some genetic diversity into this species.
2: Right. So just to emphasize, I mean, you don't want to have a genetically non-diverse population of black-footed ferrets or anything else, and we know from. I mean, history already teaches us the risks of that. One of the extinction events for black-footed ferrets has been various plagues specific to them uh, that they were unsuccessful in resisting. We also know that they're probably pretty vulnerable to SARS-CoV-2 based on mink and other related things. So you want, you want robust biodiversity. But the only way you can have that, as you say, is if somebody saved genetic material from uh, a ferret whose existence kind of predates this ferret recrudescence uh, that we've seen from these seven progenitors. So they had that, and then they had to have the technology to clone. But as I understand it, the cloning technology that was used, although it did involve using uh, domestic ferrets kind of an, on a kind of host basis, it's basically Dolly the sheep r- r- sort of written in, in ferret genes.
3: That is correct. Um, so we use domestic ferrets, um, a different species from the black-footed ferret, as the, the egg cell donor and the surrogate mother, You know, basically so that every female black-footed ferret could be used to do what they're doing best, which is breeding more black-footed ferrets. Um, so we were really leveraging uh, the domestic ferret to be additive to this program. And um, this is something that's been done actually since 1957, uh, Dolly the sheep was a big, serious milestone in cloning because she was the first clone ever created from adult cells. So they took cells from an adult sheep and fused them with an enucleated egg cell of another sheep and created Dolly. But cloning actually goes back to the 50s when people were taking the genomes of of a cell and implant from embryonic cells and stem cells and implanting those into these enucleated egg cells, basically an egg cell where the, its own DNA has been taken out and creating embryos. And from the very beginning, people had experimented with using one species as the egg cell donor and the other as the genetic donor. And it was working with a a range of different amphibians and fishes Um, mammals first became cloned in the 1980s and then dolly brought in this new wave of capabilities in 1996 which by 2000 turned into cloning wildlife for conservation and from that time every single conservation research oriented Project has used a domestic species to be the surrogate for the wild species for the, the same reasons that we did. Um, however, our programs with Black-footed ferret and the Shavalsky's horse clone, which was born in August, are the first two efforts to actually go beyond the research stage and actually move into genetic rescue to apply on the ground for conservation. So this is a, a huge turning point and uh, a bunch of cute domestic ferrets were part of making it happen.
2: Um, so, we haven't said, I don't think the name, Elizabeth Ann, that's the name of the uh, cloned ferret. Uh, so, uh, and uh, the cutest little ferret you ever did see. So, um, what happens now? Do you put her on Tinder? I mean, Elizabeth, <laughs> she's got a who's she going to mate with that's going to make this all be kind of helpful to ferretdom at large?
3: Well, uh, Elizabeth Ann, as you said, the clone of Willa from the 1980s, this beautiful ferret, which I have to say, just a big shout out to everybody in the world. People seem to have just fallen in love with her, which is a huge, hugely emotionally overwhelming to all of us in the team. It took 200 people over those seven and a half years of us developing this project to actually make this happen. And so it means so much. Um, There are actually more twin sister clones of Willa on the way as part of a, a program to actually research the breeding and fitness of these clones. And we will be cloning them all husbands as well. Um, so we're taking a, a ferret that was recently born and cloning uh, him to breed with them. We will also be breeding the, them with natural born males as well. So in 2022, when they're all sexually mature, they will breed in a, a, a variety of combinations and we'll be evaluating their offspring to make sure that we're, Bring in useful genetics into the population, that they all seem healthy and fit, that clones can raise offspring just like any other, which we have high, high expectations of. Clones are, are in livestock and other species have been made all the time by the thousands, and it's overwhelmingly positive results. Um, and by 2023, 24, maybe 25 ish, sometime in there, you know, after these results most likely look good as well, Elizabeth Ann's offspring and her, uh, her twins will be fully integrated into the breeding program. And most likely some of those early um, offspring from the clones may end up back in the wild to bring her genetic contribution into the many reintroduced populations from southern Canada all the way to northern Mexico.
2: All right, Ben Novak, we have to stop there, but you'll have to come back. We actually did a Woolly Mammoth pro, uh, program a long time ago, but the, the big question is, you know, ferrets are nice. I like ferrets. When do we get our a Woolly Mammoth? But that's a longer conversation. Uh, ben Novak is a D de- extinction biologist and the lead scientist at Revive and Restore. He re- leads the Great Passenger Pigeon comeback also. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you very much.
2: All right. So, we're going to take uh, we're going to say goodbye. We're not taking a break. We're saying goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, and thanks to everybody who listened and helped out, and all the great guests, and uh, Mazel Tov to Elizabeth Ann, uh, and all that stuff. Uh, and we will have some exciting shows for you this week, including one about octopuses tomorrow. Don't give me no carrots. I want a sleepy prairie dog, and I don't want to share it.
3: But sound underground hunting methods have merit. Dig to the prairie dog lair and scare it when we catch them on the-